This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I'm your host, Daryl Chetka, a general internist at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Migraine represents a major public health problem and is relatively common with a prevalence of around 15% in the United States, affecting an estimated 36 million individuals per year. It's much more likely to affect females and typically accounts for up to 4 million visits to the emergency department and over 4 million outpatient office visits per year. They're most common in women of childbearing age and are associated with a significant loss of productivity resulting in a major economic impact. Today, we're gonna continue our series on headache and we'll focus on migraine. We'll review the diagnosis, what's happening in the brain during a migraine attack and the potential complications that can occur as a result. Our guest today is Dr. Beth Robertson, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Beth, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thank you for inviting me. Well, let's start. Migraine is one type of headache, and I guess I would say probably one of the more challenging types to deal with in patients, but how do we differentiate migraines from some of the other types of headaches? I agree that you know, most of the time that we see headaches in clinic, we are seeing a primary headache disorder and the strong majority of those are migraine. But when I see a patient in clinic, my first question is why they came there that day. So typically if there's a change in headache, rather than focusing on migraine first, I take a step back and try to make sure I'm not ruling out a secondary headache disorder, either superimposed on the original migraine history or mimicking migraine. So some of those secondary red flag questions that I think about, I, I ask about systemic symptoms with the headaches. I ask about new neurologic symptoms. So I think sometimes patients with a history of migraine, if they describe flashing lights or tingling in their fingers. There's a temptation to kind of put it in the waste basket of migraine because that can happen. But if it's the very first time they've ever had that neurologic symptom, that deserves a pause to make sure you're not missing something else. I also ask about a postural change in headache. So, you know, if the headache is worse upright and improves when they lie down, or the reverse, maybe it's worse lying down and they actually have to get up and move around for a few minutes before it starts improving. That makes me think about sort of changes in CSF dynamics. So increased or decreased intracranial pressure, for instance. And I always ask patients about pulsatile tinnitus. So like a whoosh, whoosh sound in the ears. Sometimes I'll see patients with a history of migraine and, and maybe they've worsened and it's superimposed pseudotumor or something else. So again, back to changes in intracranial pressure with the, the whooshing sound. And, and I also get concerned if the headache is sidelocked. So if it's always, always on the left side, for instance, I would wonder about a structural abnormality kind of acting as a trigger for the headaches. But maybe the patient didn't come because there was worsening headaches. Maybe they they're just really frustrated for years of recurrent headaches and they haven't changed in a long time, then I'm starting to think again about migraine features. So things that we think about with migraine, migraine tends to be worse on one side of the head. 
the severe headaches tend to be able to cause a throbbing component. Now, neither of those features are deal breakers, but they make us think about migraine. And I listen for light sensitivity, sound sensitivity, nausea. And I think probably my favorite question to differentiate migraine is what do they do when they have a bad headache? So if the patient stops their work, goes to find a place to lie down, that's generally migraine. That's not something you would do with a tension type headache or, or a sinus headache or another primary headache disorder. That's, that's typically migraine. I know I like to ask the patient's to describe their headaches before I ask them any questions. And as you mentioned, I often find patients that have a fair number of the classic symptoms, but maybe not all of them. So migraines don't have to fit neatly in that box of having every little classic symptom that, uh, that you read about in textbooks. That's right. That's right. Well, one thing that many patients with migraine have, but again, not all are an, is an aura. So describe what that is and what's causing that. You're right that not every patient with migraine has aura. In fact, it's actually the minority of patients, maybe 25 to 30% of patients will have aura. And even patients who have a history of aura may not have it with every headache. So it's important to clarify with the patient sort of that all of the headaches where they're, they're lying down and they have that severe pain are migraine, whether they have an aura or not. And I think there's a lot of confusion for patients about what is aura. So it's, it does not refer to a sense that their headache is coming on. It does not refer to intermittent flashing lights that they may have with or without a headache or throughout their three-day headache. It's a very specific definition of a transient reversible neurologic symptom lasting a approximately five to 60 minutes. It's typically visual symptoms, but it can be sensory, sometimes language, rarely motor, where there's weakness on one side. We call that hemiplegic migraine. Most patients will describe the aura as having kind of a gradual onset and then a gradual disappearance in that five to 60 minutes. So with vision, they may describe, for instance, some positive visual symptoms like shimmering or or sparkles. And then as it spreads, they may have associated negative symptoms, maybe an absence of vision, scotomas or hemianopsia, and then it kind of gradually fades out. And the, the same is true with sensory or they may have a positive, like a tingling spread as it goes up one side into the, from the fingertips up into the face, and then sometimes even into the mouth. And that may be associated with a loss of sensation or a Novocaine type numbness that can occur with this. So I think getting that really good description, as you were saying that you do with the headache, I think that's really critical to make sure you know what the patient means when they use that term. Mm -hmm. So aura is one symptom that may lead us to think we're dealing with a patient with a migraine. What are some other fairly classic things that a patient may say that will, will tell us, yeah, this is probably a migraine? So we talked a little bit about those classic features, the associated light, sound sensitivity, and nausea. We talked about it being more common on one side of the head and having a throbbing component. I think one of the interesting things about migraine is that it doesn't even just include pain and aura. 
the symptoms of migraine can sometimes start hours to days before the actual pain attack. So patients may have premonitory symptoms. We call this a prodrome, where they have changes in mood or, or changes in sleep, or maybe autonomic features. Maybe they're peeing more or their, their bowel habits change, or maybe they're already becoming a little light and sound sensitive, even without pain. And so that will come on for hours to a couple of days. And then they'll have that aura, which is like five to 60 minutes. And then the headache attack I mentioned lasts about four to 72 hours. And then that's followed sometimes by a post-drome, which some patients refer to as a, a migraine hangover, but they still don't feel back to themselves. They still feel out of sorts. Maybe they're exhausted. Maybe they have brain fog. And I think what's interesting is that one really severe migraine attack can really take out the full week for a patient. And if you see a bunch of these back to back, you'll end up not only with pain symptoms, not only with potential aura symptoms, but patients will have kind of a constant exhaustion or a constant brain fog because they're never really back to their baseline from the postdrome before their next prodrome starts. So it can be quite difficult. Well, one of the things that frightens patients and sometimes even providers is the fact that migraine can produce neurologic symptoms. Uh, the aura, which is often visual, uh, and then the throbbing part of the headache, uh, uh, and then sometimes neurologic deficits. So what's going on in the brain to account for some of these symptoms? So the path of physiology of migraine is complex and not entirely understood, but I can tell you some of the things that we do know. So let's go to the aura question specifically. We think that these symptoms, the positive symptoms followed by negative symptoms represent this wave going through the brain called cortical spreading depression. And that's a wave of depolarization that really excites the area of the brain that it's spreading through. And then that can be followed by a hyperpolarization where there's lower blood flow, less excitability, and that's sort of those negative symptoms that can occur with aura. And as that spreads through in patients who have an aura that then goes on to trigger headache, we think that the cortical spreading depression wave actually triggers these pain receptors, the nociceptors and the meninges to start sending signals. In the front of the head, it's through the trigeminal afferents. And then in the back of the head and neck, it's the cervical afferents, but they all come together into the brainstem, into the trigeminal cervical complex. And so I like to tell patients that the wiring from the front of the head and from the back of the head kind of all plug into the same outlet. So that's why sometimes the brain gets confused about pain coming from one area versus another, or it might seem to move. And then from there, the pain signals go up to the thalamus and the hypothalamus and other parts of the brainstem and the cortex to be interpreted. But at the level of the meninges, the peptides, the molecules that are used to send the signal of pain, they're vasoactive. So they can dilate blood vessels, they can cause protein extravasation, they can contribute potentially to like a, a focal, sterile, inflammatory process, and that can perpetuate the pain aspect. So we have this sense, we, we kind of know a little bit about what's happening during the pain, and we think we understand when aura is triggering headache, but there's still this huge number of patients without aura that we don't 
totally understand. I mean, we know during prodrome, those autonomic symptoms, those mood changes, we, we've seen on functional imaging that, that the hypothalamus, the limbic system, and the brainstem and parts of the cortex are all affected. And we do think that maybe that can also trigger those nociceptors in the meninges. But I think that interplay, that, that exactly what starts the ball rolling is still an area of study. Mm -hmm. But anyway, a lot of complicated activity. <laughs> right. Gee, my goodness. <laughs> so we have a patient. It sounds like they have, a, they have migraine. There are various types of migraine, and I think we could easily spend an hour on each different type, but can you briefly kind of summarize the various types of migraine that exist? So uh, besides the, the presence or absence of aura, probably the biggest division in migraine is classifying by frequency. So patients who have headaches less than 15 days a month, we classify as episodic migraine. And if they have headaches 15 or more headache days per month, and if at least half of those can meet criteria for migraine, then we classify them as chronic migraine. And that distinction is used for research and it's used for insurance because there are some treatments that are covered with chronic or episodic migraine. You know, those are important to have in your documentation, but clinically, probably it's a spectrum of disability and it probably doesn't have as much meaning that division as we put on it, but we, we do try to keep the paperwork clean for insurance purposes. Mm -hmm. Okay. What are triggers? What are, what's triggering migraines in some people? Yeah. So there are numerous, probably hundreds of potential triggers for migraine and it is unique to each individual but I think about triggers in groups. So you have triggers related to changes in homeostasis. So the, the brain really doesn't like change. It likes everything to be the same. So changes in sleep, changes in stress, both distress or negative stress and eustress or positive stress can trigger migraines. So like a wedding, for instance, can trigger a migraine and even stress letdown. So maybe the finals week they flew through, but that first day after finals week or that first day of vacation is what pushes their brain over to a migraine. Changes in weather, changes in hormones, so that estrogen drop during the menstrual cycle, the, the roller coaster of hormones during perimenopause for women can act as a trigger. And then outside of the homeostasis changes, the next triggers would be in the elevated senses. So things like really bright light can trigger a headache or, or flickering light or glaring light or fluorescent light strong smells like perfumes, scented candles, sometimes smoke, loud sounds for some people can trigger a migraine. And then there are others like dietary triggers. So some people, you know, alcohol, MSG, sugar substitutes are pretty common. Nitrates in foods, so like processed meats can sometimes trigger or, or aged cheeses. Caffeine can be a trigger for some patients, even small amounts for some patients. But I think the most important thing is that if the patient is reading a list of migraine triggers, that doesn't mean that everything on the list is going to be a trigger for their brain. That's just a list of types of triggers that various people with migraine have experienced. In patients who have a history of migraine, is it likely that one or both of their parents have a history of migraine? Is, it, is there a genetic component to it? There is a genetic component. It is complex. So 
most likely patients inherit maybe one mutation, maybe more than one mutation that causes the brain to be more sensitive, you know, maybe cortical hyperexcitability, maybe it affects the ion channels, maybe the glutamate transmission, and that genetic vulnerability then interacts with the environment so that if that same person has a head injury or meningitis or starts on a new medicine, that may affect how frequent and severe their headaches are compared to someone else who inherited those same mutations. So when do migraine usually start? Is this something that people develop in childhood and continue throughout their life? Or do some develop it in mid-adult life? Or how about an older patient? What's a typical story for uh, migraine when they, when they begin? So some people can develop migraineous headaches in childhood, but typically the prevalence is, is low in childhood. If anything, patients may describe nonspecific headaches, sometimes ascribed to sinus headache or, or stress or eye strain. But the true migraine headaches start in adolescence and, and teens for most people, then start peaking in prevalence around that 20s to 40s, you know, especially around the, the mid to late 30s. And then somewhere around age 50 to 60, they start gradually improving again. So that over age 60, I believe it's about three to 6% prevalence at that point. Okay. All right. Well, we're going to devote an entire podcast to the management of headaches with pharmacologic therapy, because there are some major new products out there that there we... are. It's oh. very exciting time for migraine. It, it really is. But what about lifestyle changes? Are there things patients can do without using medications that can even either prevent them from getting a headache or at least decrease their frequency? Excellent question. So prevent them entirely? Probably not. But you know, can they reduce the frequency of headache with lifestyle changes? Yes. That, I mean, for the most part, people can do this. Remember I said that the brain doesn't like change. So we usually talk about trying to keep regular schedules, regular sleep, good hydration, regular meals so that you're avoiding those fluctuations in, in blood sugar, missing a meal, you know, can trigger a headache. If the patient knows of specific triggers like alcohol, obviously we would recommend avoiding them, but stress reduction can also help. So mindfulness, meditation, yoga, deep breathing all have individual amounts of evidence supporting them. And, and just anecdotally, patients often will find those helpful. And then it is important to make sure that patients limit as needed pain medicine. So we know that pain medicine, when it's taken frequently, can change the threshold for headache, making it easier to trigger their headaches. So we do recommend trying to limit to no more than approximately nine to 10 days per month to work on that. And then of course, even with the perfect monk lifestyle, some people will continue to have frequent headaches. And that's when we do talk about those medicines, which again, you'll, you'll talk about in a different, in a different session. Sure. Well, Beth, you've given us some really interesting information on migraine. Can you summarize our discussion, maybe two or three key points of importance on migraine? Sure. So I guess my first key point that I want to emphasize is that even though most patients that come in with headache have migraine, patients with migraine can get other headaches too. So I, I joke with patients that, you know, if, if a slice of pepperoni pizza can trigger a headache or a spritz of perfume, then of course, 
the flu, COVID, thyroid disease, tumors, giant cell arteritis, all of these can also trigger migraines. So if there's a dramatic change, please do take a step back and make sure you're not missing a secondary cause. And then I guess my second point would be when you're managing headaches, I love emphasizing lifestyle measures, but make sure that the patient doesn't get so focused on triggers, so hyper aware with a, with a trigger diary, you know, and chronic daily migraine, trying to keep track of every food that they eat and every amount of sleep that they start a self blame cycle. You know, some patients really need to focus more on the threshold for triggering the migraine with preventative therapy and, and lifestyle measures rather than triggers themselves. And I think the same is also true of too much focus on medicine. So please don't just hand medicines out and forget lifestyle because you might miss the fact that the patient is sleeping only three hours a night and drinking seven pots of coffee to stay awake in the daytime. And I've seen that. So uh, there's that careful balance of trying to counsel about both. Well, we've been discussing migraine with Dr. Beth Robertson, a neurologist at the Mayo Clinic. Beth, thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us today. Thank you. You can now listen to over 100 different medical topics developed for primary care providers on Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts. Find them at ce.mayo.edu or your favorite podcasting app. If you've enjoyed Mayo Clinic Talks podcasts, please follow us. Stay healthy and see you next week.